We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine booking the guests. And the newsroom, Dinah Weeks. The dog days of summer are here, and it has nothing to do with stooping or scooping. Here's Scott Thompson. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. And uh, just a uh, uh, bizarre day and, and a very sad day uh, in the history of Hamilton and rock and roll and the, the great stamp it has left on the Canadian music scene. And, um, you know, we're just continually uh, or, uh, piece by piece finding out more about this story, uh, which you obviously heard uh, earlier on the news and the police, Hamilton Police Service, giving a uh, news conference uh, a little earlier on today at about one o'clock this afternoon uh and telling us one of the founding members of teenage head uh gord lewis is uh dead after an altercation in an apartment building on catherine street south between forest and young street uh uh, also uh his son arrested john at the scene and is uh facing a second degree uh murder charge just a bizarre turn of events and uh everybody is just shocked and stunned and and just doesn't know what to to say or think or uh but certainly our hearts and our thoughts are are go out with uh the friends and the family of the band and and uh and just another tragic uh situation involving uh a member of this band so uh again as we get more and more information in uh we will certainly uh provide it to you but uh there's not much known at this time and in just the bizarre way in uh in how this started with a series of um uh, uh social media posts or contacts to a, a few members of the media who uh who who then reached out and 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 tried to see what was going on and um and, and made this discovery uh over the weekend and here's uh some clips from the news conference earlier today uh this is constable sarah beck and how this all came about police received information a number of emails had been sent to a variety of media outlets with information related to a deceased person. Based on the information, police attended a residence at 175 Catherine Street South and located a deceased male in his 60s in the apartment. Now with that, um, there has not been a positive identification made uh, on on the deceased at this point. Uh, uh, well, we'll let the constable explain that. At this time, a positive identification has not been made of the deceased due to the level of decomposition. However, uh, to clarify, she says this. At this time, with the totality of the investigation, uh, we believe the victim has been identified, but until the autopsy is done, I don't want to say 100% um, until those forensic steps are taken to be sure. And uh, we'll play this next couple of clips on um, uh, just any information and how long uh, this investigation had been going on. We believe it's uh, several days, 
I would say two to three, but again, until the autopsy is conducted, we won't know for certain. It's just uh, isolated to the one apartment right now. Um, we have uh, canvassed the area and we will continue to canvass in the building today and uh, we're at the very early stages of starting to process that scene. And so, uh, again, people are, are, are just realizing what has happened and, um, and trying to piece uh, anything together. As uh, the constable said, the investigation is at its uh, very, uh, very early stages. Nobody has any idea, uh, really, at this point, uh, what happened. It, it's speculation. Um, but the, the officer did comment on mental illness. We have uh, some belief that there is mental health involved. Uh, to what extent? Uh, we're not sure. All right, so uh, that's the latest as of uh, about 1 o'clock this afternoon when uh, uh, police gave a, Hamilton police gave a uh, news conference and uh, gave us the latest information. Uh, obviously, positive identification uh, has not been uh, released yet, uh, waiting for autopsy results, but uh, uh, confirming that uh, Gord Lewis uh, um, is gone. Uh, another member of Teenage Head uh, has left us far too early and left a lot of people, a lot of um, not only musicians in this closely knit uh, community in Hamilton, but also Hamiltonians who are just, uh, you know, just can't believe that uh, uh, the information that Constable Sarah Beck has provided us, uh, updating us on the latest in this investigation uh, into the murder of Gord Lewis from Teenage Head. So uh, as the day progresses, hopefully we'll get some more information. If we do, we'll pass that along to you and as well as uh, as try to get some reaction. And as you know, uh, as you can imagine, a lot of people are just uh, absolutely stunned right now at uh, what is going on and, and, and what has happened. So uh, again, uh, the news conference at one o'clock, you'll hear more about that in the newscast coming up at the top and the bottom of the hour. Uh, and as any more information uh, comes available, we, uh, we will certainly pass that along to you. But at this point, uh, Gord Lewis, uh, guitar player, founding member of uh, one of the founding members of Teenage Head, has uh, succumbed to injuries and has left us uh, far too soon. Uh, we'll have more on that coming up a little later on in the show. Uh, also, your chance to win some Forge FC tickets to try to brighten up this day in some way. Uh, however, that uh, is uh, is going to happen. Uh, but anyway, uh, and as I said, we'll we'll keep our uh, our nose on the story, and any more that develops, we'll certainly pass it along to you. All right, we've been chatting a, a lot of late, uh, obviously about uh, inflation and the prices of things going up, uh, grocery store fuel, what have you uh and of course interest rates going up uh however the the one bright spot in all of this is the unemployment rate is historically low at this point uh even dropping below uh the five percent mark and even here locally in hamilton uh workforce planning hamilton saying that uh we're doing quite well and the city's unemployment rate has continuously dropped since january showing a strong recovery from the global pandemic to talk more about all of this khadija hamadou is with with us, Executive Director, Workforce Planning Hamilton, and with us now. Thanks for joining us. Hope you're doing well. Thank you, Scott. How so, are Khadija, you? Great. Thank you so much. So, Khadija, how do you explain this? I mean, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, high uh, interest rates. People are talking about inflation and the cost. Yet the one yes. bright spot in this is that the unemployment rate is incredibly low. How do you explain it? 
Yeah, it's 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 quite quite remarkable, especially what we've been facing throughout this pandemic. But right now, in Hamilton specifically, we are at a 4.3% unemployment rate, which is an all-time record low, um, especially throughout the last few years. So in July 2022, the Canadian unemployment rate has remained at a record low for Canada, um, making it a really good recovery from Omnicom variants that plagued Canada recently. So the overall unemployment rate now for Canada is at 5.0 percent um, but as of july 2022 the total canadian labor market is at about 20,000, which means that we are at a 4.3 rate and the although the participation rate employment rate has decreased we are seeing that the unemployment rate has also just taken a really low um, structure, which has been amazing. And I know that we were talking about, you know, the waning consumer power and inflation. Um, but overall, the unemployment rate has been just really spectacular throughout this recovery stage of Omicron. Uh, we've often heard of labor shortages and there just isn't enough employees to go around. Uh, mm-hmm. People are, are, are looking for more. And, and as people shift jobs, have changed careers during uh, or as a result of the global pandemic, how much of all of that is a part of this? Oh, yeah, it has a huge it has a huge impact on uh, the unemployment rate right now. And we're seeing that as the continuous job postings increase, we are seeing that the uh, actual employment rate is decreasing, which means that everybody is getting some form of employment that they're looking for. But it's the right employment that will decrease the retention rate is is the key right now. So that's what we're looking for and meaningful employment for individuals in the Hamilton region. But overall, you see these job postings continuously being out there. It's just trying to find the right people that will be in the job and stay uh, with, you know, trust and loyalty and just retention as a whole. That's our ultimate goal in the Hamilton region right now. How long do you think they'll stay this uh, untraditionally low? I mean, can this go on for a long period of time? Yeah, it definitely can. It all just depends on where our current society is, right? So with the pandemic, that caused a lot of shift within the employment rate. But now that we're seeing things becoming a little bit more consistent, you know, with every restaurant's reopening and, you know, the school board is opening up a little bit more. So you're seeing that consistency happening, which keeps the unemployment rate consistent as well. So as you see that consistency happening within in society, you're also seeing that shift within the employment rates, keeping it nice and cool. And hopefully throughout this recovery stage, it remains that way. And this obviously favors employees, does it not? It absolutely does. That means that it's just a little bit more variety for um, employees who are looking for the right individual uh, to you know, come apart and be a part of this job um, labor market in general. So employees, we're at an employee market. That's what I call it right now, where you're seeing employees get a little bit more leverage on the diversity of what type of job they're looking for, really shifting into second careers at this point. So it's a really great way for you to showcase your different types of skills and move those skills through career laddering. So taking those skills that you have and trying something new with it. So as I call it right now, we are an employee market where there's diversity and there's a range for people to try new things and new types of employment. Are there any sectors where you're seeing more movement or there's more opportunity? 
Yeah, right now we have the top five growing industries. That's something that you can grab on our workforce planning Hamilton page. But right now we're seeing manufacturing, finance, real estate, rental leasing, um, agriculture, transportation, warehouse, construction. Those are the top five growing industries as of July 2022. Um, it just means that there's about you know 9,000 new workers going into this field, especially in the real estate and leasing industries where we're seeing these um, interest rates going up but the housing market going down. So that's where we're really seeing that shift happening. But overall, these are the five industries that, you know, are the top requirements to go in and you're guaranteed to find some type of employment or some type of apprenticeship program that will help with those growing industries. And that's a pretty broad range uh, of a list you have. What are your concerns? I mean, is this just sunny days or what are the concerns uh, for workforce planning Hamilton moving forward? The concern is making sure that we are keeping employees in the role that they would like to be in. Because, you know, with this, as we just said, it's an employee market. So there's a lot of shift. There is a lot of retention that's not happening within these these employment uh, fields. So when you're seeing people going into these roles, the hope is to keep them in these roles that they are satisfied and they're happy being in. And that's where we're seeing that inconsistency coming from. It's the back and forth between going into a role and being like, okay, you know, maybe in a few months, I'll try something new. So it's just trying to stay consistent as a whole and really finding the job that you would like to remain in and love. As All right. Uh, there you have it. Doing quite well. And it looks good for the future as well. Khadija Hamadou with us, Executive Director, Workforce Planning Hamilton, unemployment rate in Hamilton below the national average, uh, which is <laughs> historically at 5%. We're below that. Khadija, thank you so much for the time. Good luck moving forward. Thank you, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, there's uh, certainly been lots of chatter around uh, Minister Melanie Jolie and uh, her competence of late. Um, well, really, when you think about it, right back to the beginning. I remember uh, very vividly when the two Michaels were released and people were asking, uh, you know, were they going to speak? Were they going to talk? Were they going to, you know, give any interviews, this sort of thing? And she basically said that they're on parole and uh, of some sort, and I'm paraphrasing here, and was asked to explain. And, of course, we never really heard uh, much about it after that. Um, and, you know, sort of flubs like that just continue throughout uh, her time. Uh, I've been very critical of, uh, of her and her situation. Many have said it's not so much her as it is uh, the office and, and the people that are working with her. Uh, let's bring in uh, Sabrina Maddo, columnist with the National Post. Uh, her latest a couple of days ago, the incredibly incompetent Melanie Jolie. And Sabrina is with us now. Sabrina, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me. So is it the minister or is it the office? Well, the minister would like us to believe it's the office, but that's increasingly uh, requiring us to really stretch our um, stretch our disbelief. Um, and the latest flub that we, and in fact, it's more of a flub, I'd call it a scandal. Uh, it was reported by the Globe and Mail that Canada essentially abandoned its Ukrainian embassy staff in the weeks leading up to the Russian invasion. And this is despite the fact that there were intelligence reports that these Ukrainian staffers were likely on Russian kill lists, so they were left to be detained, killed. As we know, uh, when Russians um, detain people a lot of the time, there's torture involved, so this would have been a very horrible fate. Um, 
And now this is broken into the public knowledge. And of course, Melanie Jolie's office is again saying she never knew that there was a risk there. She didn't receive the intelligence reports, which even if we take her at her word on that, there's a huge problem in that case at Global Affairs where staffers either aren't telling her about um, these very critical issues and also that she can't seem to foresee these issues. I mean, anyone who knew that Russia was about to invade, which was, you know, blasted in headlines around the globe in the world's biggest news outlets, uh, could have foreseen that our Ukrainian uh, embassy staff would be in danger. And for her not to have foreseen that, intelligence reports or not, uh, raises questions about her qualifications for this position and whether she should retain it going forward. How did she get this position? Because, again, this isn't the first time there's a long string of this sort of activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, she was put into this position after the last election, um, before she was more on the cultural affairs file. Um, and I'm willing to, you know, give the benefit of the doubt at first uh, that maybe she would embrace the position and uh, overcome the learning curve. But with the frequency of these major screw ups on big issues that matter where lives are at stake, um, we're past the point of talking about a learning curve. Um, we need someone very competent who can handle this position. Uh, is this office a priority for the Prime Minister's office? Is the whole file in general a priority for them, do you think? Uh, well, it doesn't seem like it, but it should be. Um, the most pressing issues of the moment, many of them concern foreign affairs, whether it is um, what's going on in the Ukraine, obviously, or, for example, our relationship with China. We've been waiting on a promised new China policy since 2019, and that's still nowhere to be seen. The position of our diplomat to China has been vacant now for over six months. There's crises popping up around the world. Um, we're going to have ongoing issues, likely with our relationship with the United States, depending on how their elections go in the future. Um, this is not a position that can just be uh, shuffled off to the side and given to anyone. Um, you know, I, I, I hate to be so critical, but is it me? It appears that she just doesn't have a clue on any of these issues. And I remember a CBC reporter asking her a question one time when uh, they all took off over to Ukraine, and she basically said, I reject that question. Well, you're a public servant. You can't reject a question. You can try to answer it. Um, is there anything she has displayed that shows she's capable of this file? I'd say no, there really haven't been any big wins. Um, the biggest win under her time in office was, of course, the two Michaels coming back. But that was really the United States that uh, was responsible for that deal and that trade-off. And even in the aftermath of that, like you mentioned, she walked into some clubs that, you know, weren't necessary. Um, there doesn't seem to be an indication that she gets this job or that she has the experience or the knowledge to uh, come up to speed, unfortunately. Um, again, making the comment about the two Michaels not speaking and something about being on parole, did she ever qualify or, or explain that statement? You know, I can't remember if she did or not, unfortunately. But, you know, yeah. either way, um, there have been too many of these statements that we've had to come back and get apologies for. Or even worse, a lot of um, not being willing to give clear statements to the media and the public when there are these mess-ups, whether it's sending an official to that Russian garden party a while back, yeah. or whether it's now 
did she know or didn't she with abandoning um, the Ukrainian embassy staffers? Um, there's a pattern of not being transparent, of not um, being able to provide clear answers. And that's concerning because that also impacts public trust in a time where public trust is already at an all-time low. Uh, is this helping or hurting the prime minister's office uh, at this point? Do you see changes coming? Oh, it's absolutely hurting the prime minister's office at this time. Uh, they, he's facing enough issues domestically uh, with inflation and the economy, the housing crisis. Uh, he doesn't need to be walking into more issues internationally. Of course, some of these things broadly are out of his control. Um, there's only so much we can do when it comes to the Ukraine invasion or dealing with China. But we don't need to be making these problems worse over really things that, that, that are not even hard. You know, just making clear statements, doing things that any competent minister should be doing. Uh, right now, the prime minister is on vacation and his history when he comes back from vacations is he often has uh, mixed up and shuffled around the cabinet. So we'll see if this is a position that he's going to reconsider. Uh, we know the prime minister is a self-proclaimed feminist. Is, is it more important for him to have a female in this position than have somebody who's actually qualified for the job? I almost hate to ask that. I would say I hope not. And I think that it's important when he is putting females into cabinet positions that he sets them up for success. Unfortunately, what we've seen time and time again with the Trudeau administration is that females have been given cabinet positions and then either they've been set up preemptively for failure or they're thrown after under the bus when a scandal happens. And that's ultimately bad for um, women in the public sphere and bad for the public's perception of how women can competently handle these jobs, which they can but they need to be equipped to do so. Considering where we are in the world, especially with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the instability in China, I mean, do we not need somebody very active in this post? Absolutely. Um, considering, like you said, the state of the world right now, we cannot afford to have someone who is inexperienced or who needs to go through a learning curve. This is not the time for someone with potential to be in the position. It's time for someone who has a proven track record. Sabrina Maddo with his columnist with the National Post. You can read her latest, the incredible and competent uh, Melanie Jolie. Sabrina, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You as well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. As we heard in the news, reports uh, suggesting Hamilton's third homicide is a founding member of Canadian uh, legendary Hamiltonian uh, Hammer Rock Band, uh, Teenage Head. Uh, the Spectator is saying they've confirmed the band's guitarist, Gord Lewis, found dead in a downtown apartment Sunday night on Catherine Street. Uh, one person connected to the deceased is in custody, and detectives say they are not looking for further suspects. Uh, in a news conference on Monday afternoon, uh, Hamilton Police Detective Sergeant Sarah Beck said uh, positive identification of the body still pending due to an ongoing autopsy, but did say investigators believe the victim and the accused were father and son. Positive identification uh, coming with an autopsy. So that's where we are right now. Uh, that being said, uh, we decided we'd go back and, and dig up an, an old interview uh, and this was, I believe, from 2019 and also made it into 
the Teenage Head documentary, Picture My Face. And uh, we've got some excerpts here of, uh, there was just maybe a, a, a few seconds, a couple of minutes of this interview that appeared uh, in that documentary. But uh, we'll play you some, uh, some more uh, content that didn't make it into uh, that documentary. And this was the band members uh, all in CHML studios prior to going to Westdale to perform a concert uh, that night. Here is the band talking about how it all started. How did this band get together? Right in the high school. Yeah, yeah right in high met. school, yeah. Yeah, just met in high school. So you met in high school. I, I can play, you can play, yeah, let's get together and play. Yeah. yeah. What were you playing then? Ford was playing bass. Yeah, I was playing bass. Oh, yeah, you, was playing, had no, you had the no. music. What music, were you, what music were you, were you playing? Whose music MC5, were you playing? MC5, Iggy Pop, mm-hmm. Kiss. Not so much kiss at the end. Yeah. Oh, a little kiss, so you'd strut it, right? No. Yeah, Aerosmith, Roxy Music. Sweet. Sweet, yeah. Yeah, yeah just uh, stuff when, we were listening to at the time. Wh- when did you start to get into the into the um, um, process of writing and creating your own stuff? What was that? What really was early. Really early. Like we we wanted to write songs. Like that was the goal of the band was to write songs. So you want you wanted more to write your own original yeah. material. As I know I did. To do other people's stuff. Yeah, I, I no, remember you coming to me and saying, "I got a song called Jet 45." Hmm. Was that was the first? Was that Jet 45? It's a song. Yeah. Was that one of the first ones? Yeah, it was one of the first ones. Yeah. That, you know. Yeah, that would have been what, 75, 76 around that time, right? Yeah, we didn't want to be a band that played weeks in bars. We wanted to be a band that played one nighters. We kind of were we were pretty focused for kids. Uh, um, Where did that come from? <laughs> from going to Massey Hall and seeing bands play yeah. and have, watching your favorite band play. And that was, this is when bands were playing high schools. Bands were playing at Massey Hall all the time, too. There was yeah. a concert every week, just like there was a band every month in the high school. And uh, I know Steve and I would go to every concert pretty well. Talk about music of that time. We're talking about the mid-70s at this point. Uh, on the radio, disco. Disco was making a huge... And this was almost like an anti-disco music, the whole uh, movement, the whole punk movement. The, timing mu- is the whole punk movement. in 76, and so did we. Mm-hmm. But you were nothing like what was being played on the radio at that time. No. No, you're right. You weren't. Talk about that battle, that what that was like. Because mm. you're blazing a trail that was it going against mainstream at the time yeah well we fortunately I think Q107 had just gone on the air in 76 or 77 and they just jumped right on us they started playing uh, a couple tracks off our first album and CFNY was uh, was mm-hmm. helping us as well so we got a bit of support really from radio when you look back and think about it the DJ supported us. They would come out to the shows. So there's a whole thing going on in radio, too, at the time that was a little different. There was the disco, but there's also this new wave rock and roll yeah. thing going on yeah. as yeah. well. Yeah. And uh, we kind of rode that wave. <coughs> uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, AM a- sort of getting it around 79. Mm-hmm. Like the beginning of days, it was more like, yeah, that, it was more of that kind of thing. Then around mm-hmm. singles started getting played. I mean, Nevin like, Grant was super supportive. Yeah, back Nevin. Then. Yeah. 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 yeah, super supportive. And uh, it's almost as if it went from the punk movement to the new wave movement. And yeah, you got it. And then it became more mainstream yeah. and acceptable mm-hmm. as we got into the, to the early 80s and stuff. Did it lose its edge when we? 
when it became mainstream? Not as far as we are concerned. We just kept doing what we've always done. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to see us t- tomorrow night. It's the same thing we've always done. We've never really wavered off that. Mm-hmm. When you look back at your career now, at this band now, what do you think about? Survival. Hmm. <laughs> Why are we still here? Yeah. 43 years later. It's been a lot of ups and downs, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Every gig was an Ontario place. <laughs> <laughs> Close, yeah. but... Uh, Close, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think it's, it's really cool that we ended up playing our first gig right across the street at the school. Mm-hmm. That could have been at the Y on Ottawa Street. That could have been anywhere. That could have been in Barmbits for somewhere, but it was, it was there. It was at our school. Stephen Prendergrass was the in charge of whoever hired bands for dances, and he, hmm. we must have just bugged him and let us play, let us play, let us play. What do other musicians, younger musicians? I mean, the Canadian music industry has changed so much since you guys uh, blazed the trail. Um, hmm. What do other musicians say to you guys, younger musicians, when they meet you? Well, if they've come and seen us, they're happy. They like it. Um, Sign my bass. You know, <laughs> oh, yeah. what about what about influence? What about do, do they tell you stories of how your music affected them? Not a lot. I mean, you do get that. Yeah. Um, it's not like we've had thirty number one songs that got sold millions of records around the world. Um, close. Do you, <laughs> do you? This is a dumb question, but do you wish you'd sur- you'd sold all that? I mean, you know, as you well, said, this this band's had quite a, a colorful past. It's had ups and downs, huge ups and you downs. Know, it's like Gord said, we tried really hard, and we just did what we do, and we never compromised. We never said, "Oh, let's get a, a keyboard player in the band because that's the new wave sound coming out of England right. right now." No, 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 no. We just did what we did, and like I said, we're still doing it. What's and your thought on where music is today? Go ahead, Dave. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I have to say one thing that if you thought about the bands like the Trues we played last year with Billy Talent at uh, Tim Hortons Field, and Ian DeSore always comes and sees the band, and mm-hmm. he loves guitar, Gord's guitar playing. You know, that's a real mm-hmm. tribute because when we saw them play after, they're they're really good. Yeah, really good. And the fact that he cites Gord as one of his main influences, and always comes to every show. And also, there were the Trues, which we know them. They're mm-hmm. Halifax boy or Nova Scotia boys that now live in the area, and they were at the show, uh, Jack and Colin, and they both said that the most exciting moments of the night was seeing Gordian, this band play so I guess that's a little bit of an example of bands from the past that sort of are still watching the band and getting moved by it uh, that was Gord Dave and Steve Teenage Head uh, back in 2019 uh, before they played at uh, Westdale High School and of course that was a part of uh, their documentary Picture My Face as is that appearance uh, at Westdale we'll play some more of that for you coming up a little later on we're playing a, uh, a, a clip from uh, an interview which we did with the band. This was prior to performing at Westdale High School, which, uh, of course, was a part of their documentary, Picture My Face. Uh, we're obviously, um, uh, Will uh, Erskine's done a great job, and we've uh, tracked down the producer of that. So we're going to talk to him coming up a little later on this hour as well. Uh, but here is a excerpt of that interview, some of which was seen uh, in the documentary, talking about... Uh, coming back to Westdale and the infamous Ontario play story. I was in high school when you guys were uh, hitting it big, and I remember that uh, um, you were scheduled to play at Markham District High School, and then that 
damn riot in Ontario Place, and it all kind of went out the window. When you see other fans or other people like me, do they all have to tell you their teenage head story? They do. They really <laughs> yeah, do. They're, they're so passionate about it, too. Come right in there under that yeah, mic. They're really yeah. passionate about their stories, yeah. Uh, do any of them resonate, or do you just, oh, yeah, it's another one. It's another fan. Well, Ontario Place is a big one. That's a, a lot of people like to talk about. All right, let's let's talk about that since uh, you know it seems to be uh, front and center. What happened? What happened? Oh <laughs> uh, no! <laughs> two pounds of bologna in a one-pound bag. They just, you know, they just they just had too many people. They just yeah. they just weren't expecting that many people to come. I don't think. Right. And they just weren't prepared for it. I don't think they expected expected it at all. Uh, so, what did that night, what did that event do for Teenage Head other than getting them cancelled at Markham District High School? Mm, I've been told we sold a lot more albums. Whether or not that's true or not, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> uh, Rolling Stone magazine wrote about it, so it was international. It got international magazine. Uh, you know, stuff mm-hmm. like that. So we lost a gig at Markham High School. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Alice Cooper got canceled. Yeah, didn't we should try and do that one over. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but you know what? They tore the school down and built a new one. That would be a good reason oh, to do it. Surprised. All right. So speaking of high schools, going back to Westdale, what is this like for you guys? I mean, and, and I understand you've moved up from the calf to the actual gym this time. <laughs> That's, right. That's well, good to see. you know, Michelle's here. Joined us from. She's a principal of the school, so thanks to her. She. Uh, I'm sorry, Michelle. I had no right. idea you were joining us. Yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I thought you were with the band, not with. <laughs> She's our new drummer. Wait a sec. That's Gene. Wait a sec. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure you're a principal? <laughs> I know. It's hard to believe. Doesn't look no. like Mr. Meeklejohn. <laughs> I was gonna say, does this look anything like the principal that? Uh, oh no. You guys, <laughs> Mr. Watson did not no. look like Michelle. And, and, and again, not to to, to uh, you know not to go in that direction. It's just you're wearing a leather jacket. <laughs> so there's and, lots of administrators that wear leather jackets. There you Ooh, go. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, so uh, out of the cafeteria, and you said into the gym? Yeah, yes. no. We're going into the odd. No basketball nets on this one. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, this is awesome. auditorium. It's yeah. awesome. Talk about this. Yeah, how did that happen, Michelle? You tell us what uh, your, your story, how you, you yeah. got this band to play again. Because we had a conversation. That's right. <laughs> Sometimes all you need to do is say hi to somebody, and yeah. amazing things happen. Uh, I was at the St. Hollywood, and these guys were playing that night. I was just talking to the bartender and said, who's playing tonight? They said, Teenage Head. And, and uh, my partner with me said, you know, most of them are, are West Elk grads. I said, yeah. I'm going to go over. They were warming up. And, yeah. and I said, I can go over and say hi. So I just introduced myself as the current... Uh, Westdale principal and they hopped off the stage and we had an awesome conversation I thought they might just run in the other direction (laughs) (laughs) have you been drinking (laughs) for 12 years 40 years (laughs) 43 years later have you been drinking (laughs) I hope so (laughs) (laughs) I smell liquor on your breath (laughs) detention so this is kind of how the conversation went right 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 so it makes total sense Uh, yeah and so they talked about well then I saw the cameras and they talked about the fact that they were filming a documentary and I said wouldn't it be awesome if you were to be able to come full circle and 
and play back at the high school again because they had told me how their first ever gig was in the cafeteria of mm. the high school in 1975. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said, could you think mm. we could make that happen? And I said, well... I don't in know. other words, what that means, could you get us clearance? <laughs> <laughs> Are we still allowed what on the property? Yeah. Can we drink alcohol on the school premises? Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, no riots happen in between. So we can still do it. <laughs> so, so as far as doing this from a school perspective, what was the response like? Oh, it was great because it actually nicely tied into what we, we were planning a, um, a wall of distinction ceremony right. celebration. And I said that, well, you could probably play as part of those celebrations. Well, then it turns out their name was put forward for induction. The group Teenage yeah. Head um, was put forward for induction. And so it nicely tied in. Their name came forward for induction, and they are going to play as, as one of the inductees. So it came together perfectly in terms of the school celebrations we were looking to have. All right, that's uh, Westdale Principal Michelle Visca uh, back in 2019 talking about Teenage Head uh, playing there. Uh, more coming up uh, on the news on the story that is uh, developing and uh, the passing of Gord Lewis. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right, as you uh, heard earlier on on the news, we have lost Gord Lewis of Teenage Head. The investigation is uh, ongoing. We've been playing a portion of or portions of uh, an interview. It's about 22 minutes long that we uh, did back in, I think it was 2019. And um, and, and Teenage Head was uh, filming a documentary, and I, I believe the next day going to Westdale High School to perform. We had the principal on. It was pretty funny. It was a great time. So we're playing you little portions of that. Uh, throughout this show uh, to uh, to honor the band and just give you a sense of, of the community that they had and what a part of Hamilton they were. Uh, and, of course, a portion of that was used in the documentary Picture My Face, the story of Teenage Head. Uh, Douglas Aerosmith is with us of Felt Film, executive producer, director of Picture My Face, the story of Teenage Head, and is with us now. Doug, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hi, Scott. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Pretty, pretty what are your What are your thoughts when you hear of the news today that Gord Lewis is dead? Uh, it, it just it was shock. It was real shock, and um, I just think you know I got a Steve and and Deb called me earlier and uh, wanted me to know the news before it all hit. And um, yeah, it's just been it's been a hard day. How did this? How did this documentary come about? How did this first get started? Well, I think uh, Jean, it was Gene Champagne, the drummer, um, had seen um, my Ron Sexsmith film and had gone to the guys and said, you know, this, um, you know, this may be possible. Maybe this is the guy to do it. And we had a couple of first meetings um first with steve and and gene and uh next was gordy and i remember i remember that meeting you know gord was as as you know as we show in the film it's it's been gord's band and you know gord signs off on everything so it was really about then developing what would become a really heartfelt relationship with him uh, that, you know, lasted even beyond the film. So, um, and every step of the way, I think, sort of, you know, learning more about Gord and, uh, you know, some of his struggles, 
and you know his celebration of the music and the band uh and what that journey had been from hamilton to you know that that point of that peak you know uh, was mm. all part of getting to know him but we also like to just sit on on patios that is local in hamilton and and just talk about whatever came to mind um he loved that and i Yeah, uh, I remember the last, uh, he wanted to be on his local patio the last, for the, the cat and the fiddle was closing down. Hmm. And he wanted to be there the final day, and we happened to just be able to hook up. And it was, it was just a really lovely afternoon. We spent, we just took our time and visited, and yeah. Do you think guy. he... Do you think he fully embraced or was aware of the impact he had, not only uh, on musicians in this city, but Canadians and, and around the world, the impact that this band had for its, for its lifespan? I think like any performer and, and you know, craftician or whatever you want to sing, singer-songwriter of that caliber, there's, there is a, a knowing. Um, I think he, he liked to hear about it, his influences. Um, he, he knew he had something that was genius for sure. And he knew it was in that guitar. He knew it was in whatever that drive was that that got behind those songs and made them happen in the first place. Um, there was a kind of, uh, Gordy Lewis, um, sound even i you know being in other doc shoots i i had heard big producers often reference that like i think maybe this needs to be a little more a little bit more gordy you know gordy lewis hmm. quality and i i think he i think he knew it but he also didn't believe his, the the extent of his influence there was a kind of modesty there and and also, you know, an, an ego too. Like when he when he got on that stage at Horton's Field, you know, for the Labor Day Classic, like he, you know, he 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 could pull it off. Yeah, Gord Lewis could pull that off. You know, so yeah, it's um, and he loved being on the road. I just I, I remember, you know, part of the film was finally getting him back out on the road, and he just. I remember how content he was at the end of that. We followed them out to Thunder Bay and then on to, I think, Winnipeg. And we'd driven, we'd driven from Thunder Bay to Winnipeg. And it just, just the, the contentment on his face. I, I could, you could tell at the end of that, um, little journey that, that that's kind of where his soul was, you know. He, he loved he loved the audience. He liked to interact with fans. Douglas Aerosmith with us of Felt Film, executive producer, director of Picture My Face, the story of Teenage Head. Doug, a difficult day for you. Thank you so much for sharing the stories of Gordy Lewis. Much appreciated. Uh, and be well. Thanks for having me on, Scott. I really appreciate it. Uh, Douglas Aerosmith, Felt Film, executive producer, director of Picture My Face, the story of Teenage Head. If you haven't seen it, look for it. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. In the height of the global pandemic, obviously a lot of attention drawn towards uh, Canadian uh, Canada's healthcare system. And really, for the first time in a long time, uh, we've seen all the provinces on the same page, actually led by B.C. Premier Horgan, uh, looking for a change in a federal funding formula. Uh, it became obvious that all the provinces were experiencing uh, the same sort of similar issues. Uh, many have said they're the best to uh, implement all of this. That's why it's a provincial uh, jurisdiction. But at the end of the day, if the uh, feds can't afford it, how can the provinces afford it? We all know that Canadian health care started with with uh, the feds paying 50%, uh, now it's somewhere just over 20 and uh, we're wondering why provincial band-aids don't work anymore. Let's bring in Randall Denley, author and columnist with the Ottawa Citizen and National Post. His latest, uh, Ford will keep taking blame until he comes up with a real health care plan. Randall is with us now. Randall, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Thanks. So what more can the provinces or this province do to speed this up and make it more than just a provincial Band-Aid? Uh, it seemed we, we correctly identified way back when that this is a issue that's gone on or gone, uh, going on right the way across the country, and we're in need of some sort of new template uh, uh, to, to sort of hit a reset on this. Are we running back to provincial solutions as Band-Aids again? Oh, I think there's an awful lot of band-aids applied to our system because we haven't really fundamentally rethought it in a very, very long time. But if you're Doug Ford and you want to convince both the federal government and Ontarians that you need a lot more money from the feds for health care, to me the best way to do that would be to say, look, we've got a plan to bring health care in Ontario to the level that it should be. It wasn't at that level pre-pandemic. It's relatively worse now. Here's how many nurses we need, how many hospital beds, long-term care beds, doctors, all the elements of the system to meet the population of the size that we have and taking into account aging. But th- these are numbers that can be calculated, but you need to set targets. And if you say, well, that's where we need to be, but here's where we are now, not nearly there. If we had more federal money, then we could do A, B, and C, to make this better. But he hasn't done that. Unfortunately, I think they don't get much uh, credit for the things they have they have done because they seem to be dis- disconnected moves that aren't really part of a plan, or if they are part of a plan, they're not one they're really sharing with the public. You know, more long-term care beds, that's great. It'll take years. And even with their full plan in place, it will still only meet the demand of today five years from now, but it's not going to take us where we need to be in the future. Great start. Uh, They've hired more nurses. We're still way short. We're short of everything in healthcare, and we have terrible wait times, as you know, for uh, surgeries. That's just gotten worse. So we need to to explain, he needs to explain to the public, here's where it should be. Every Ontarian should have a doctor. Hospitals should operate at 85%. We need to set a reasonable wait time for people to have surgeries and a reasonable wait time for people to get into long-term care. You know, not tomorrow, but not years either. 
when you say to somebody who's already well into their 80s, ah, we're looking for a spot, but it could be a couple of years. I think, okay, that's probably the rest of my lifetime. Hmm. Um, I remember what an expectation is, and I think Scott government's always been reluctant to do that because it makes what we're doing look worse. You say, well, that's, that's what it should look like. Wow, what we've got now is way short. But we know that. You know, it, it's in the newspapers, on TV and radio every day. People know there's a shortfall, but because nobody's putting any numbers on it, we don't really know how far we are from where we should be. I was talking to, and, and, and not to get sidetracked here, uh, the president of the Canadian Dental Association, when they were talking about dental care or pharma, you know, there's pharma care, daycare, whatever. And, you know, he said every province has a great plan and a great way to take care of their people. The problem is they don't have any money and they don't have enough money to service all of these things. So is it that we don't need, uh, that we don't have a plan or there's lots of great plans in place. It's just we can't afford to run them. And, well, you know, he was, he was, Ontario, he was, I haven't seen he, it in the last 20 years. He was suggesting like a that, whole bunch of ad hoc things of adding yeah. pieces to this and that without really having a clear goal. And, you know, just, I think we need to be honest too to say that this is not a problem that can be solved in short order no. with money because a big part of it is a, a lack of people. You know, there aren't enough nurses and there aren't enough doctors. So, if Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, showed up in Toronto tomorrow with a blank check and said, Doug, just do what you need to do, fill in the amount, wouldn't make any difference because we don't have enough people. And a key part of all this is a health human resource strategy. It should be national, could at least be provincial. But we ought, the government ought to be able to point at what we're doing in training doctors and nurses and saying, well, this is the number we're producing every year. That's the number we need to catch up and stay ahead of demand. But it seems to have almost nothing to do with that. They've increased spaces for training doctors and nurses to some degree, so that's good. But again, without a plan, we don't know. So does that take us halfway to what we need, 10%, 90%? Who knows? I mean, certainly the public doesn't know. I don't know if the government knows either. And I think that's where the uh, the premiers collectively ran into trouble with their pitch for more money because people say, oh, yeah, the federal government, the provinces, they're always complaining back and forth about money. I mean, you know, truthfully, if the only impediment to better health care in Ontario is money, then the government should raise taxes and get the money. Because, you know, you and I sit here as Ontarians unsure whether we're going to be able to get health care when we need it. And if the government's only argument is, well, yeah, we'd like to help you, but we don't want to charge you too much. Does this start with, does this, does this start, Randall, with a new template, with a new federal funding formula? Because again, when this started, the feds were paying half of it. Now it's up to the provinces to pay, uh, you know, over three quarters of it. So does this start, does this, I think, well, we ceded tax points to the provinces. And then you get into stuff that people can't really properly assess, but and part of the issue is the federal government, if they're going to give more money, well, they want to control it. Well, it's for this, it's for that. They're going to set the priorities. So there's a definite jurisdictional issue, but at the same time, it's hard to figure why the federal government doesn't get that health care is one of the biggest, if not the biggest issue on the minds of Canadians right now. They have a great opportunity 
to work with provinces on plans and uh, training strategies and things mm-hmm. that would actually help and take the credit for it, even while the provinces spend the majority of the money. So politically, while you wouldn't seize that opportunity, I really don't know. Instead, you know, we're going to ban handgun importation. Yeah, That's the big yeah. thing. We've got to get on that. Yeah. What about health care? Yeah. Well... <laughs> And, and again, know, uh, we, for another day. we're using the same uh, failing template to come up with dental care and pharma care and all the rest. Where does that get us? Uh, Randall Denley with us, columnist for the Ottawa Citizen and National Post. You can read his latest there. Randall, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Yeah, my pleasure, Scott. Thanks a lot. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Ontario legislature is heading back and to talk more about all of this. Uh, Colin DeMello is with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News and with us now. Colin, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Colin, is it a little early for us to be heading back to this? I mean, it seems that, uh, you know, it, it's still a little early in the summer. How come we're heading back to where we are or is that not the case? Well, a couple of reasons. Doug Ford has always been a bit antsy. Uh, In 2018, you might remember, not long after being elected, uh, the government recalled the legislature for a very rare summer sitting. Um, And and that really got them in a a lot of trouble because ministers weren't able to be briefed up in their files entirely before they got back down to business. This time around, it is a little bit different. The government tabled a budget just before the last election. They ran on that budget as their election platform. And now they have to retable and reintroduce the exact same budget, which is why they're calling it back so quickly. So tomorrow we'll see the throne speech uh, that will be delivered by the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, Elizabeth Dowdswell, on behalf of the Premier. Right after that, the Finance Minister will be in the legislature to deliver the budget uh, for the second time this year. So are they expecting a full house, full attendance tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, you know, all of the MPPs have have been largely coming back. It's been quite interesting to see the, the difference between when we left and when we came back. A lot of the MPPs are now maskless, not really paying attention to any kind of physical distancing rules. So that really is a major change. But, you know, we're we're seeing now MPPs and staff return in greater numbers as we're seeing you know, the greater economy start to return in person once again. So what are we expecting in the next week or so uh, to happen in late summer at this point? Well, so two major things. One is the throne speech tomorrow. So this really signals what the government's priorities are uh, for the next four years, or at least this uh, session of the Ontario legislature. So, you know, we'll be hearing more about, uh, you know, building of highways, building of uh, hospitals, uh, moving the WSIB building from downtown Toronto into London, as an example. That was one of the things the government said they would do during the election. Another thing they said they would increase ODSP rates uh, by about 5% giving people on disability support payments just a little bit more. Not enough, they would say, uh, to really be able to afford rent and food, but a little bit more coming from the government. And then, you know, really the large question, what are they going to do with health care? How are they going mm. to fix this problem that has been, you know, years, maybe decades in the making, but seems to have all come now together, um, thanks to the pandemic and is really affecting our healthcare system and leading to closures. That's what we're going to see tomorrow in the throne speech. And there will be some who find it adequate and there will be a lot who might not find it adequate or give them really the answers. But it is the broad themes of what the government is going to do or try to achieve in the next four years. Obviously, Colin, lots of chatter about health care uh, since the long weekend and shortages and closures and that sort of thing. Uh, has there been any more chatter about because during the, the, the height of the, the global pandemic, obviously, a lot of this came to the forefront and, and, and 
and where Canada's health system uh, was. A lot of the provinces experienced the same thing. There was chatter of a new template, a new funding formula. Is is there any sort of um, conversation as to the provinces and the feds getting together on this as opposed to searching for more provincial band-aids, it seems? So when it comes to uh, that funding formula, that has been a long gripe of all of the provinces combined. Uh, It has really come more into focus since Doug Ford became premier because that's you know, they all of the premiers realize that if they make a singular argument about the increase of healthcare transfers, they may actually be able to, you know, uh, put enough pressure on the federal government to get that money. But we see no commitments from the federal government that they're actually going to spend that money or transfer more money to the provinces. And in fact, one of the things they're looking for is guarantees on how that money is going to be spent before they would, you know, open up the piggy bank there. That's very similar to how they did the child care agree- arrangements. Uh, the agreements for $10 a day childcare. They wanted to know how the money was going to be spent by the provinces first before giving them a single cent. So really, it's left up right now to the province to really repair the issue. They're trying to recruit more nurses and more healthcare staff, but that has proven to be a long-term challenge. It's not something that they can do in the short term because you know you need more staff right. to go through colleges and universities. You need to um, bring in more people through immigration, and you need to uh, have more internationally trained nurses uh, credentialed. And that's all slowly in the process, but opposition MPPs say it's not moving fast enough. On the opposition, both looking for main parties, looking for leaders, how does that shape this session? So it is interesting. All of them will have interim leaders. So with the NDP as an example, we're going to see a different style uh, than what Andrea Horvath had. Andrea Horvath uh, typically was in the spotlight herself. A very few other MPPs really got to share that spotlight. And on top of that, um, Ms. Horvath would focus on on a few key issues. Long-term care is an example being one of the main ones because the NDP always felt like that was you know, their bread and butter where they may get more more votes or more support. This time around, Peter Tabbins is the interim leader. He was, you know, really focused on energy over the last few years. So we'll see exactly how that's going to manifest with him as a leader. With the Ontario Liberals, Stephen Del Duca obviously resigned as the leader of the Liberals. So they are they have uh, John Fraser back as the interim leader. But John Fraser has told me one of the things he wants to do is spread the wealth. He's got a couple of municipal, uh, former municipal councillors who are now MPPs. He's got a a, a former emergency room physician who's an MPP. He's got somebody who was in the banking sector who's now a liberal MPP. So they're going to let them speak a little bit more rather than just have it concentrated with the leader. But, you know, for those two parties, the backdrop is always going to be the leadership. And we should find out, hopefully, by the end of 2023, who the leaders of both parties are going to be on a permanent basis. Colin DeMello with us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this as the Ontario legislature gets back to work. Colin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. All right, the Ontario legislature is back. I know it's only it's like August 8th, uh, which is, is that earlier than normal? I'm not sure. Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I am, thanks. I hope you are too. So far, so good, Peter. Uh, a little earlier to be a little early to be heading back. Should we be waiting till September? Or how does the schedule normally go? Well, I mean, normally what happens in the spring is that there's a presentation of the budget for the year, which is then accepted by the legislature, so that when the Ontario government is spending money, uh, you know, it's money that's been agreed to by the people's representatives. But we went into an election, and so 
uh, you know, the government is doing the right thing in bringing the legislature back early to, you know, present a budget and have it approved. Because normally we wouldn't really see the legislature back, usually until October, uh, you know, as they move into the next budgetary cycle. Uh, lots of chatter, obviously, about health care coming out of this uh, global pandemic. There was lots of chatter during the pandemic as uh, flaws in the Canadian health care system were put forward. We heard all the provinces uh, under the direction of uh, B.C. Premier Horgan uh, asking for a, a rejig in the funding formula. Once, of course, the Fed's paying half now. Uh, it's really up to the provinces to pay uh, at least 75% of it at, at this point. And there were, it seemed that we identified at that point that, uh, you know, the provinces uh, have the right plans in place. What they don't have is enough funding for this. And it was time to reexamine this. Now that the, uh, you know, we've made our way out the other end or living with this global pandemic, it seems we're not having those discussions anymore. And it's coming back to the provinces because, of course, it's their responsibility. Is there any more chatter? Should there be any more chatter with the provinces and the feds on all of this as opposed to just coming up with more uh, provincial band-aids yeah i mean i think we're going to continue to see the provinces uh you know trying to convince canadians that the federal government needs to uh, transfer you know some of its money to the provinces uh for this um and i'm presume that when uh trudeau comes forward and you know tries to make the case for a pharmacare plan or for a dental care plan you know, the provincial argument uh, will be that you have to give us some money before we're going to go forward on those on those new initiatives. So, you know, it is a situation where the federal government uh, is in a stronger position to, to raise money through taxes uh, than the provinces. But, you know, it's also true that if provinces, you know, want to, you know, improve funding for health care, well, they have budgets, too, where they can make some of those decisions. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a long and complicated fight what the percentage should be. And I suspect we're going to continue to see... Uh, the federal and provincial governments uh, having these uh, these conflicts, but overall, yeah, we're in a situation where the federal government probably should be sending more uh, money to the provinces for, I mean, healthcare, but uh, probably a number of other, you know, important social missions. Uh, you mentioned dental care, pharma care. Uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh says he wants uh, a, a dental care plan in place, or he's calling all of this uh, agreement off. Uh, are we making a mistake by using the same template here? I mean, this is the way uh, healthcare started. They were paying half, and then they slowly whittle it down. I mean, what's to say the same thing and the same problems won't arise with dental care, pharma care, or even daycare uh, over a period of time? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly the argument that the provinces uh, bring out that, <clears throat> you know, is the federal government really a reliable participant in these things? Uh, on the other hand, you know, Canadians seem to vote for parties uh, federally that are, you know, willing to make these kinds of investments. And provincial premiers uh, obviously see the popularity of these programs and don't really want to get into the way. So, I mean, I think we'll continue to see uh, these kinds of, you know, policy designs come coming forward i mean dental care may end up looking a bit different uh, being run you know very much as something you know which is already run as kind of a set of private insurance services for people through uh, you know their employers so there may be that you know setting up that kind of system will look a bit different than you know healthcare where you have a much more complicated system of you know hospitals and uh, related uh, you know healthcare professions and so on but yeah i mean uh, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, what the best way is to go about setting these things in place while protecting the provinces from having the federal government pull the money uh, down the road. Um, but, you know, again, even in healthcare, you know, the federal government was once at 50%, but, you know, then they in fact gave, you know, the, the power to levy taxes, uh, you know, a share of that to the provinces in 1977, 
Uh, but the provinces forget that point when they're making their case. And so, you know, on some, you know, there, there's many different ways of, of calculating a percentage. I think, though, even if you, you know, uh, took into account some of these past things, you know, the federal government is still a bit absent in terms of its health care funding today. So is there much more the provinces can do? Is there much more in the toolbox, to use an old worn-out phrase, that the provinces can do? Because it seems if there's lineups, well, then they just throw a pile of money towards that. Or if there's we got an issue with kneecaps and they throw money towards that, it just seems that the problem never gets really, truly fixed. Is there much more they can do at that level without more funding? Uh, well, I mean, there's always talk about how you can, uh, you know, rejig services uh, and maybe come up with some more efficient, you know, responses. And I mean, in some areas like, you know, cataracts, we have examples of, uh, you know, the the sort of uh, almost assembly line uh, cataract surgeries that they have in place now compared to, say, 30 years ago. So, I mean, there are there are a number of solutions, uh, but, you know, but the problem with many of them is they come uh, up against existing ways of doing things and the interests of, uh, you know, existing healthcare professions, which are very powerful. So some of the changes in primary care that have been proposed for the past 25 years have, you know, consistently not got off the ground because there's a lack of buy-in from, you know, physicians. And ultimately, governments don't want to get into a fight with the doctors. Uh, how will this session look uh, with opposition and no and temporary leadership at this point? As uh, both NDP and Liberals are looking for more uh, for new leadership. Well, at the best of times, I don't think Ontarians spend a lot of time thinking about the provincial government. Uh, you know, then add to that that we're in mid-August, and then you're right. You mm. add to that the fact that the parties have interim leaders, and so Ontarians don't really, you know, know who they should be looking for as. Uh, uh, as a leader of the opposition. So I think for those reasons, yeah, I don't think there will be a lot of uh, close following of this session and makes it kind of an interesting one strategically then. I mean, for the, the Conservatives, particularly in a period of inflation, you know, you bring up a budget where if you're not increasing, you know, the value of the money being sent to different programs by, you know, five to seven percent, you're ultimately actually reducing the value that you're sending to it because inflation is eating away at that. So the Ford government has, I think, is a real opportunity here in its first budget to uh, put itself in a very advantageous financial situation because the taxes that they receive are going to be going up with inf- inflation. Uh, but if they can keep their costs below, uh, you know, they're going to set themselves up in a pretty strong position to be able to, on the one hand, you know, balance the budget, but also have budgetary space to do the kinds of spending that they want on highways and subways. When will we see new leadership in the opposition? Any time frame? It's not particularly clear. It seems like the NDP is kind of in internal uh, conflicts about when their race is going to be. But I think the indication will be that early in the new year, they will have a new leader. The Liberals, it seems to be a longer process. In many ways, they've put off the decision about when that leadership is going to come until they have a kind of a deeper rethink about their party. So, you know, in their case, we might be looking, you know, a year's time before we see who the, you know, the Liberal leader is. Maybe it matters less in that case uh, because they don't have official status at Queen's Park, so I don't think they're going to be that much on the radar whether they have a new leader or not. Uh, for the NDP, getting a new leader is probably more important, uh, again, in terms of you know the expected role in, uh, you know, in, in question period uh, and in being the, the opposition at Queen's Park means that you probably want someone who's recognizable and who will get picked up in uh, media coverage. Peter Griff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, Ontario Legislature is back in session. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Gord Lewis, teenage head, is gone, and uh, his son has been arrested and charged with uh, second-degree murder. In this case, it's an ongoing police investigation, and as soon as we know more, we will pass that along to you. But at this stage, uh, early stages of the investigation, uh, there is very little that we know at this time. Let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the Ongoing History of New Music, and is with us now. Alan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, this is uh, this is extraordinarily sad. Uh, Gord was, I met him countless times over the years, went to see Teenage Head a billion times over the years. And, you know, Gord mm. was always a very quiet, gentle sort of guy. Mm. It's amazing how much tragedy this band endured over over time. It, it really is. They have, if it wasn't for bad luck, they'd have no luck at all. I mean, things started yeah. so strong, you know, across the street from you at Westdale High School uh, in 1975. I mean, this was a band that was formed and started playing gigs before the Sex Pistols and before the Clash and were punk before there was such a thing. And uh, they had a great run right up until the early 80s when Gord was in a bad car accident just before they were supposed to tour the United States for uh, a bunch of very important showcase gigs. Uh, when he had that accident, uh, that tour was called off. They missed their window and were never really able to recover from that. And then they had all kinds of issues with record labels and you know where are their master tapes. And then uh, Frankie Venom dies, and and now we have have this. It's it's you know this is a band that really should have it, uh, be- become much bigger worldwide. Uh, acknowledge much greater, much more forcefully for what they did for music. It's it's it really is uh, too bad. Uh, there are a lot of what ifs here, aren't there? There there sure are. You know, what if they had uh, had had capitalized on that momentum of uh, following the spectacular yeah. Ontario Place riots, where kids <laughs> were literally swimming in Lake Ontario to get to the old forum to see the band that night. Uh, what if they had actually been able to go on that tour and and convince yeah. a bunch of American record labels that they were this thing that was uh, a force to be reckoned with? Um, what if uh, they had made better choices with their record labels? What if they had better management? What if they had decided to relocate from Hamilton to someplace else where they might have been closer to the music industry? Uh, it, it just goes on. You know, what if Frankie, you know, hadn't ended up in jail so many times? What if uh, he hadn't died? There's just so much to talk about. Let's talk about Gord's guitar playing, how influence, influential that was, how much of a, of a driving force he was behind these songs. Well, he was one of the, the chief songwriters, and um, he had a style that was, you know, sort of sort of punky, sort of rockabilly-ish, mm. um, that, that's was really appealing to uh, a bunch of other people who came up during the same time. You know, Sylvain Sylvain, for example, from the New York Dolls, big fan of Teenage Head. Uh, I remember when I was uh, working at Y108, uh, Sylvain just walked into my office one day. So what are you doing here? So I'm, I'm here to see Gordon, the guys. Uh, I went out for dinner with them one time with Marky Ramon from the Ramones, another big fan. Mm. So, mm. you know, there was a lot of mutual admiration going on between these uh, pioneering groups. I mean, Teenage Head mentioned in the same breath as the New York Dolls and the Ramones. Yeah, absolutely. 
but why don't people know more about them outside of Canada? That's just uh, that's just a tragedy. Uh, all right, let's uh, can't let you go without asking you first your thoughts on the passing of Olivia Newton-John, seventy-three years of age today. Obviously, had a long history with cancer. Your thoughts? I'm going to tell anybody who believes that Auto Tune is the devil to go back and listen to her duet with John Travolta on the song mm. "You're the One That I Want" from the Grease soundtrack. This is 1978. No studio trickery. No auto-tune, none of that sort of stuff. Listen to her performance, her breath control, her phrasing, her the decisions that she makes with every single line in that song. That is sheer, utter, unadulterated talent. God-given that uh, we, we don't see as much anymore. At least I don't feel we see as much anymore. Remember, this was a woman that uh, sold 100 million records. She mm. was the biggest female pop star of the 1980s. Uh, and then she was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer in 1992 and became a fierce activist for breast cancer research, research and awareness. Um, very important lady, very important. And uh, she will be missed. Uh, and, and a couple of huge hits like Physical, my goodness. That was like one of the top songs of, of the year that year. Uh, number one for 10 weeks, and yeah. you know, along with Jane Fonda and James Fix, she kicked off the uh, the physical fitness craze in the early part yeah. of the 80s. This whole idea about going to an aerobics class and dance aerobics and 20-minute workout and all that sort of stuff, all, you know, was a lot of inspired by that that uh, that song and that video. And the sweat band. Uh, Alan Cross oh, yeah, with his host. The, the sweat band, <laughs> the leggings, the leotard, the whole thing. That was a... a a uniform for the 90s i mean you know let's think uh you know flash dance came out of that whole thing yeah so it's uh you know she she had a lot in it. she had a lot to do with with pop culture in the 1980s alan cross with us host of the ongoing history of new music talking of the loss of two great ones including uh, olivia newton john and teenage head guitarist gord lewis alan as always thanks so much for the time be well you're welcome. Back in 2019, before the pandemic, all of this, uh, we had Teenage Head in uh, to talk about them playing at Westell High School right the, uh, across the way from, from CHML at 875 Main Street West. And they're also filming a documentary at the time uh, called Picture My Face, which has uh, since came, uh, come out. And a segment of the interview that we did on CHML was included in that documentary. Uh, a very small portion. Uh, we found the original. It's like 22 minutes long. And uh, we've been playing excerpts of that interview from 2019. Uh, just before, the day before they played uh, Westdale, the Westdale principal was actually in on the interview uh, as well. Uh, here's another excerpt of that interview uh, with the band talking about Frankie and, of course, the documentary. What do you think Frankie would say? Um, let's ask him. <laughs> <laughs> he'd be there right in the front row. He's, yeah. Yeah, he's, yeah, he'd love to play in the auditorium. Oh, oh, yeah. yeah, he'd love it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. What's it going to be like for you guys to be standing on stage in there? I'm not sure. Sure, we were just over at the school about half an hour ago, and I, I found mean, my it, old locker. Really? There was no lock on it. I don't know if it was... It means not being used at yours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> old <laughs> locker. Maybe it's like this. Can we know. retire the locker? That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or do you think it's going to be... It feels 
feel good on that stage? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's going to feel. It's a beautiful stage. It's a beautiful theater. It's going to be fun. What is it like, though, playing for those kids that you used to be? I mean, you Mm -hmm. used to be those kids in that auditorium. It's kind of weird. Yeah, it's sort of weird, but I think it'll be terrific, you know. I think it's going to be exciting to play for them. And and not even so much that, the fact, like you were joking, I mean, when you guys go on stage, they're not going to stand there and go, they know exactly who you are. They yeah. know your history. Yeah. And, and, of course, how your history is, is woven into this city and, and Canadian music. Yeah. That's, that's got to make you feel pretty cool. Uh, hopefully there'll be some chaos. We don't want chaos. Who's no chaos? No chaos. Who's, <laughs> who's the first one to throw a chair? <laughs> no, well, They're a fix. Frankie. Frankie. Frankie, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, what do you guys do? And tell everybody, guys, what you're doing now. How often do you perform? What what goes on? What's happening? You're obviously making a documentary. Well, Steve. Um, with with Gord, they put together a compilation uh, that just got put out on Warner Music, and it's called C- "Fun Come Fast," mm-hmm. and it's a wonderful collection of all the the music that this band has made over the last forty years. And he they, he did such a great job, you know, in the in the design of the album. It, it's on vinyl. What, what color vinyl is it? Pink vinyl. Pink. Mm. Pink vinyl. Pink vinyl, and it's still on CD. We're too selling them the, tonight. Yeah, oh, and they'll be there. And uh, mm-hmm. it what a nice job, and it. it, it the band just got put into the Indie Hall of Fame, yeah. uh, which was a great, ex- great feeling because I think uh, the band everywhere I've gone in the world, somebody's been influenced by Teenage Head. Like uh, even we played last year for um, different festivals, like Colin. Mm-hmm. Um, Colin James. Colin James said, "Hey, you know, I loved Gorge guitar playing. Frank, I love watching Frank play. Everywhere we play, there's always somebody that comes up and says that the, this band um, influenced them or made them want to play music from Gord Downey." Who mm. they covered uh, Teenage Heads music with uh, with Finn, mm-hmm. uh, and they played. Am I correct? You were there when they played. Uh, Picture my face at Cuffs, right? Yeah, I was yeah, there, yeah. yeah. It sounded yeah. great. Yeah, uh, that's and it's on YouTube. But so I think for this band, it, it's coming home as it shows everything that's happened in the years, that the influences, and then the students can see that that that, uh, that the music has gone worldwide, and and uh, made a, made an impact. Are we you know? losing the Are we losing the magic of a guitar driven driven band? Hmm. Probably. Yeah, probably. I mean, you know, are we losing that basic rock and roll? I would say so. Is that good or bad? Mm, I don't know. If people are streaming Drake a million streams a day, they must be happy with it. Yeah. Right. So that's their choice. But you never know because, you know, like some young kid might be like the way that when when we were young and we heard a music that maybe nobody else had heard. And you go, hey, I want to make that. You know, because this when when Gord was brought over the New York Dolls album, mm. that wasn't mainstream, right? Oh. That was a very low stream. <laughs> you call it, but well, yeah, yeah, you're you know, so right. Like those bands never ever got airplay and still don't get yeah, airplay. Yeah. Maybe on some obscure satellite radio so, station. But, but they took that music and it inspired them. You know, so it's yeah. it's, it's sort of a continuum. You never know eh, what, how the effect is out there. You're doing. Right? It's, just, it's just real. It's really lucky that FM radio still enjoys our music, and like you said people still identify with it that's Gord, dave and steve back in 2019 talking about the band and a new compilation coming out and uh, them regrouping to play westdale high school 
uh, and that was uh, the day of. And uh, of course, excerpts of that used in the documentary uh, "Picture My Face." So, uh, as uh, we mourn the loss of Gord Lewis, we celebrate the music of uh, Teenage Head and remember the great memories. Um, would the band want it any other way? Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. And that's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, greatly appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills and Diana in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Mr. Lowe writes in to say, Today, we lost two entertainers who may have had different tastes in music, but were committed to their profession and were united in making people happy with their music. Rest in peace, Gordon Olivia.